0: You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open-source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston, PhD. He's a veteran psychologist and was a longtime CEO of a multi million dollar consulting firm, which had serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. In the food industry, big food. You may have seen his work in contributions to the New York Times and the LA Times, uh, the Indiana Starlinger. New York Daily News. He's also been featured on Psychology Today. And Dr. Livingston has a very unique approach to help us stop binge eating. The title of his book is called Never Binge Again. And it is a really, it's a mental tool. It is a mental technique to help us really deal with our food obsessions, with our binge eating. Most of us, especially for some of us who are really focused on optimal performance, we sometimes obsessive over food and we have a weird relationship with it. And most of us grew up, um, not eating excellently. And we have these old habits that are now not only attached in our reptilian brain to make us want sugary things, but are also attached to our upbringing. But as you'll find also just absolutely smashed over our heads with billion dollars in marketing and advertising to get us to eat these foods. And Dr. Livingston worked in that arena for a while before figuring out how he could reprogram his brain to stop binge eating. He's got a pretty fascinating approach on how to deal with this. And what I think is the most interesting thing is that not only is this a fascinating way to help with deal with binge eating by calling the binge eating urge inside of you a pig and characterizing it in a very harsh way so that you can deal with it but we are not taught these mental frameworks enough this is the type of content that we need to understand so that we can empower ourselves so that we can use these mental techniques to live the sort of lives that we want and as you know I've I've Had a couple of podcasts about this; these very mental techniques recently. But I really want to keep empowering you guys so that you can take your own life under control. The other cool part is that you can get a free copy of his book in PDF or in digital copy if you go to NeverBingeAgain.com. It's for free. It's a pretty cool offer, and I think for a lot of us, this will make a lot of sense. (laughs) This approach to uh, dealing with your binge eating and um, you know, unhealthy associations with food. If you like this content, please let us know, please subscribe. I say this every episode, but I really mean it. It really helps our numbers. And uh, I think coming up here soon, we're going to be doing some special offers for those of you that subscribe a couple of fair warning notes. Number one, this is a unique approach. Uh, it's borderline silly, but apparently it's been a very effective for lots and lots of people. And that's why his book has sold so many copies. Also, there is a beeping sound coming from his end. He has some construction going around his office. And so there is a slight beeping sound during, but I don't feel like it really distracts from the content. Uh, it's pretty subtle and it's in the background. So just a heads up, uh, as always, I would suggest listening to these podcasts like I do at 1.25 speed, 1.5x speed is a little too fast, but one and 1.25 speed actually allows you to zip through this content a little bit faster so that you can go be awesome. I'm so excited to bring this content to you. It's my pleasure, and uh, I hope that you dig it. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Glenn Livingston. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur. A blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Glenn Livingston, who's a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a marketing firm who's worked with Big Food and also the author of Never Binge Again, Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this all week
0: yeah tell us your tell us your origin
1: story. well, how old are you thirty six. So when you're a little boy, do you ever remember going to the supermarket and they were out of pop tarts or pretzels or pizza or something like that? you remember, you remember that? Oh yeah that, that was probably me. I was probably responsible for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had an eating problem. I, I didn't think it was a problem back then, but I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and I figured out when I was about 17 that if I worked out two, three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And, you know, whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of munchkins, six packs of Pop-Tarts, anything you could imagine. I didn't think it was a problem, I thought it was great. I thought it was a really great trick that I had. And I was spending an awful lot of time eating, an awful lot of time working out, a lot of time sleeping. But, you know, my, my body was a junk food processing machine, and I was happy with that at the time. When I got a little older, and I was in graduate school, and I was, you know, 22, 23, and I was married, and I was seeing patients, and I was driving, you know, two hours each way to to the hospital, I I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't work out like half hour a week, much less 2 hours a day, and I found that I couldn't stop eating. I it's like the food had a life of its own and I just kept doing it and I'd be sitting there and I'd be working with a suicidal client or I'd be working with a couple right after they had an affair. Very very high risk situations and I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors. And so being a good psychologist is more important than anything to me in this world. And to, to be a good psychologist, you need to lend people your soul. You have to be 100% present right there with them. And I wasn't because I was thinking about when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the, of the tray into me, right? So and I, I mean, I joke about it now, but it was really very distressing. More than that, I was getting fatter and fatter. And you know, I could carry some weight on me at my height, and people didn't really notice. But I was not moving as fast at the gym, and um, and, and my triglycerides were going through the roof. I mean, like I had readings over a thousand, and the doctors were saying, "You're going to die by the time you're 30 if you keep this up." You know, you your there's heart attacks up and down the line in your family, and strokes. And what are you doing? You got to stop. And I couldn't. So. Being a psychologist from a family of seventeen psychologists, where, by the way, the standing joke is, if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. Right. Um, I just have to get that joke in now. <laughs> but, but being from that family, I figured if you got a hammer, everything's a nail. And so I figured the psychological approach was really what's going to do it. There must be something eating me. It's not what I'm eating. But there must be something eating me. I must have a hole in my heart, and. If I could just figure out how to fill it, then I wouldn't have to keep I wouldn't have to keep eating. And so I went to see some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists and nutritionists and eating disorder specialists. And I went to Overviews Anonymous for a lot of years. I, I did everything I could think of. It was a really soulful journey, but it just kept getting worse. I mean, I'd get better for a little bit and then I would gain more weight. And then I'd lose the weight and I gain even more weight until I was about well about two hundred and sixty was about the highest I ever weighed in at, but then I stopped weighing myself. I'm pretty sure I was about two eighty. I don't think I got up to three hundred, but you know so i I wasn't the world's fattest guy, but i was I was obese I was obese and this all culminated and came to a head when three things happened: one was that I had initiated a forty thousand person study on the internet. This was back when internet clicks were cheap and I got 40,000 people to take a survey about what, bother, what bothered them in life. Where were they stressed in life, work, home, play, uh, romance? What foods did they have stru- trouble controlling once they started them? Um, chocolate, chips, bagels, pasta, et cetera. And I would look for relationships between them. I'll tell you the answer. to. I'll tell you what came out of that in a minute. So I did the study. I've been doing a lot of consulting for big food. I and Big Pharma and some other companies that were in the fortune five hundred. but but basically, I never had kids, and I never commuted. So I worked at home. I had a lot of time on my hands. So I developed a second career doing advertising research, psychological advertising research for big companies. And I feel guilty about that now. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war because i I saw that they were what they were doing was putting millions, if not billions of dollars into engineering. These food-like substances, these are like hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that are designed to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And so is it any wonder that we're all looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container when that's what's going on? I also looked at the animal studies about what happens when you short-circuit an animal's Pleasure center, and I don't think these were ethical studies, but they were done back in the 50s and 60s. And they would insert a electrode into the animal's pleasure center in the brain, and then they would wire that electrode to a lever that they could let's take a rat for example, so, so that the rat could press the lever as much as it wanted to. And what do you think happened?
0: Uh, they they pressed the lever into the, until they until they died. They stopped eating.
1: Basically, yeah. Basically, um, a nursing mother rat would ignore her pups and go press the lever thousands of times per day. A a uh, starving rat would press the would press the lever thousands of times per day and ignore its food. They would crawl over painful electrical grids to get to the lever. What happened was the short-circuiting of the pleasure center stole their survival drive. They ignored their survival needs. Now. I'm using those words on purpose because I think that there's a, an analogy in modern day society. I mean, you can walk out of a McDonald's and across the street, there's a Burger King, right? You can, you can, and I don't mean to single those two out because there are hundreds of chains that are feeding us more or less the same stuff. But um, the, the things that we were being fed, they're not really food. They're, they're food-like substances. and the, we didn't have chips and pretzels and pizza and, and chocolate on, on the savannah when we were evolving. It just wasn't there. It's, it's, um, it's hitting our evolutionary buttons in a way that we're not prepared for. And I think that if you look at how people don't like fruit and vegetables anymore, most people will say, well, I can never lose weight. Because everybody knows if you really want to lose weight, you probably have to eat more fruit and vegetables. And people go, "Fuck that!" Excuse me, they screw that. I, well, you, t- you told me, I could curse beforehand, right? Please do, right? yeah, let it fly. <laughs> potty, mouth, potty mouth, podcasters. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, they, they say, "Screw that! I want potato chips. I want, you know, doodles. I want, I want my stuff. I want my stuff." Um, and there's a process of down-regulating the nervous system. When you overstimulate something, when you overstimulate the nervous system. We're adaptive and the brain stops responding at the same level. It's kind of like when I was in graduate school, I slept underneath the subway. And the first two or three weeks, I thought, how am I ever gonna get any sleep? But two, three weeks later, it's like, I don't even hear the subway anymore. Um, down, you down-regulate the response. If you have a chocolate bar every day, by the end of a couple of weeks, an apple is not gonna taste anywhere near as sweet as it should. By the end of a year, you might feel like you need that chocolate to experience any pleasure, any taste pleasure at all. Sometimes not even to experience pleasure, just to feel normal. You might feel displeasure in the absence of chocolate. This is why people come to think that they need these things to survive. So I was aware that that was happening, and that didn't seem to have anything to do with the emotional struggles that it was having. And, and I, knew that, I knew that these companies were getting better and better and better, at creating these substances. They they you know they were studying the mouthfeel, they were experimenting with different chemicals. The advertising industry then presents it in such a way to make you feel like you can't live without it. I remember a major food bar manufacturer that I consulted for, very very popular. And they told me that their biggest profitable insight was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. And so they made the packaging look vibrant and colorful and and like a whole diversity of colors. Well, in nature, what that signals is the availability of a diversity of nutrients. So the advertising industry is tricking our brains into thinking that this is the stuff we need to survive. Most people think advertising doesn't work on them, but – the news I've got for you is that when you think it doesn't work on you, it works on you more because your sales resistance is down. That's how all the subliminal messaging gets in. Not to say that everybody is, I don't think there's many hidden persuaders or you're not being hypnotized or anything like that. But there, there's a lot of science, and a lot of research that goes into what you're shown, how, how it looks, how it's prepared before it gets onto the screen, um, what's said about it. There, there's, there are... There's a fortune that goes into researching that, and it's effective. They're not wasting their money. Most of them are not wasting their money. Um, and then I, then I stepped back and I thought to myself, well, what did I learn over OVRIs Anonymous? They were telling me that I was powerless over food, that I couldn't resist. There was no human, no human defense against some of this stuff. And I said, well, that can't be true. And I looked at the, looked at the studies on that, and I found out that you know, the 12-step programs are either at parity or worse, than doing nothing at all. That's what, that's what the research showed anyway, at least at the time. If someone knows differently, please tell me. But at the time, that's what I found. And I said, well, one more thing. So when I analyzed the results of the study, I found three really interesting things. I, now, I always started my binges with chocolate. I was a real chocoholic. And people who struggled with chocolate in the study that I did, the 40,000-person study, they, they tended to be lonely or broken hearted. sometimes a little depressed. Um, People who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be stressed at work. No, And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels and pastas, uh, even pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought this was really fascinating. I figured that now all I have to do is ask people what food do they go to and now I know where I have to work with them psychologically and I could figure it out. But let me start with myself. So I said, why in the world? Okay, and I, I was brokenhearted. I was in a bad marriage and I was really distraught about it. And I, I wound up staying for another 15 years, but that's another story. Um, I called my mom and because my mom raised me and was also a therapist, and I said, Mom, what is it about chocolate that I would want to go to when I was brokenhearted? Like what what could have set up this pattern? And she gets this god awful look on her face and she says, I'm so sorry. Like <laughs> Mom, what is this? She goes, I'm so sorry, I don't think I could tell you. And I I say, Mom, it's okay. Whatever it was, it was 40 years ago. I forgive you. I love you. Just just tell me. And she says, Well, when I was when I was a boy, when I was one year old in 1965, my dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. He was a psychologist, but they were talking about sending him to, to Vietnam. Um, my and she was terrified because she was trying to get pregnant a second time. And you know she had been an English teacher at a inner city school, and she actually wound up spending more money on presents for the kids than they paid her in salary. So how was she going to get by with you know two kids on her own? and she didn't want to lose my dad? And at the same time, her dad, my grandfather, was um, was just out of prison, and she had adored him her whole life, but he was guilty. And she didn't know it, and she just just devastated by the news. And so her whole personality was kind of coming apart. She just didn't know who she was anymore. And she said, so, honey, what I did, I, I just didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and hug you and feed you. When you came running to me all the time, I, I was busy staring at the wall and being depressed. So what I did is I got a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor, and I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. And when you came running to me, and say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running to the refrigerator, and you'd open, up, open it up, and you'd take out the bottle, and you'd suck on the Bosco, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. So now, Sean, if, if this was a movie, at this point in the movie, mom and I would have a great big cry and a great big hug, and I would never have a chocolate problem again, right? Right. Right. <laughs> um, it's not the movies, and we, we did have a, you know, a hug and a metaphorical cry, and, and um, I forgave her. I learned a lot of things about her because of that conversation. I learned a lot of things about myself. I forgave myself. So there was a lot of psychological healing, and sometimes I lead discussions about the emotional elements of food addiction and where the patterns got set up, but I don't want people to think that that actually cures the problem because it really doesn't. Um, as a matter of fact, my problem got worse once I figured that out. The reason it got worse was because there was this crazy voice in my head, and it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this crazy marriage, you're going to have to go binge on more chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. Right? So it was this voice of justification that seized on the emotional insight and seized on the emotional stimulation as a reason to do more. And so between that and what was, the, what was happening in advertising and in the big companies and, you know, with the addiction treatment industry, I said, this is all wrong. I can't love myself thin. I'm busy trying to love myself thin. I've been trying to do it for almost 30 years. It's not working. I have to be at it with the wrong paradigm. This is, this is kind of embarrassing. This is the embarrassing part because I, I, I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I've, I've done tens of millions of dollars of consultings. I've done worldwide projects. I've published in all these academic journals. I've did all sorts of things. This is how I recovered from overeating. It's It's ridiculous, but this is how I recovered. I said, okay, I need to make this into a black and white issue. I need to draw very clear boundaries so that I know when this thing inside me this bodily organ, which turns out to be your reptilian brain, your your lower brain, the brainstem, where the survival drive is, when that presses me to break all of my best laid plans, I need to know exactly what my best plans were. So there's no ambiguity. So I would start with something that said, you know, I will never eat chocolate Monday through Friday again. I'll only ever have chocolate Saturday and Sunday. Very, very clear. Then I decided, this is the embarrassing part, that the thing inside me that was going to press for chocolate was my inner pig, like my, my reptilian brain, basically, but I called that my inner pig. Now, bear in mind, I never thought I was going to publish this. I, I figured this was just a journal. I was just going to figure this out for myself. I didn't work with eating disordered clients. I knew I had a problem myself, so I referred them out, or at least I referred them to an ancillary person to help me with it. Um, I, were, I was a child and family therapist. I did not work with eating disorders. So I said, that, that's my pig. If I hear something in my head that says, oh, Glenn, you can get away with a bite of chocolate on a Wednesday because you worked out hard enough. It's not going to make a difference. That's just my pig squealing. That that voice itself is squeal. And what it's squealing for is slop, pig slop. The chocolate itself would be pig slop. So I would say, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop. and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. As ridiculous as that sounds, as crude as that sounds, as primitive as that sounds, it gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up, remember who I was, how I wanted to be around food, and make the right choices. Not, not as a miracle. It's not like one day I was addicted, the next day I was not. But the miraculous change was that I no longer felt powerless. I started to recognize that it was really me making the decisions. I didn't think there was some mysterious disease inside of me, some unusual force, or, you know, like, gee, if I could only figure out what the psychological problem was, then this would be all better. Um, no, it's just I don't eat pig slop, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And then I, I started to feel enthusiastic and hopeful that I could take control again. It gave me back my free will. It's not that I never made a mistake again, but I always made it consciously and purposely thereafter. And I, I never had the excuse that um, something overtake took me or that I fell into some never world and you know, something took control of my hands and my arms and my legs and my mouth and my tongue. Um, I don't need pig slop. I don't let my almost tell me what to do. I, I published the book by accident. I, I was getting divorced in 2015, and I was a minor part of a publishing company. I, I owned—I think it was 16% back then. I own 8% now. Uh, and, and the CEO there, who was a good friend of mine, and he was a student that I coached in marketing for a lot of years, he said he wanted to publish a book and market it so we could prove that we knew how to make a bestseller. Like a long-term bestseller, not one of those you know flash- in the pen bestsellers, so so that we could attract more um, valuable authors. So I said, fine, I'm getting divorced. I need something to do. I was going to close down all my other businesses. let let me let me turn my journal into this book. I have this crazy journal. So I spent a month or so turning it into a rudimentary book. I give it to Yoav, as my partner's name. And it's like, when this is fantastic. Donuts are pig slop. I don't eat. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I said, "You're kidding me." He says, "No, I haven't had a donut in a week." Yeah. <laughs> so he, fast forward, he's lost 86 pounds, and we, we released it on Amazon. I mean, we knew, we knew what to do as marketers because I've been in marketing and psychology my whole life. But I had no idea it was going to take off the way that it took off. And it just have a, has a life of its own. It's we're edging up on 700,000 readers, and we've got over 2,000 reviews. And every now and then. I'll be at a bookstore and some guy kind of points at me. He doesn't, he doesn't know my name. They don't, they don't know my name yet, but he goes, pig guy, pig guy, <laughs> which is it's exactly what you want when you're on a date in a bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's my story. That's, that's why. Yeah.
0: We can be in control of our, we need, we need aggressive solutions. We need aggressive solutions that will help us, um, unwind our urges and you know from the book it talks about this is a survival drive gone wrong you know we are we are programmed to eat sweet stuff and even more than being programmed to find nutrient dense foods uh from our evolutionary uh time frame to eat sweet stuff if that's if that's combined with a uh subconscious attachment to some food you know for you it was bosco for me, it was cereal, uh, and and that doesn't go away just by coming to an understanding. It doesn't go away by knowing the source and of of that craving. It goes away through a firm plan and saying things like "I will never eat chocolate again" or "I will never eat chocolate uh, during the weekdays." I think a lot of people sort of like shudder. That you're setting yourself up for failure by saying I yeah. oh, will never do this, but that's sort of that we need a plan. If we're obsessed, if we are, if we have an unhealthy relationship with certain foods, we need an aggressive plan. And it just so happens that your uh, your journal, uh, with the conception of of understanding that that sort of reptilian brain you've associated with this pig and it's effective for people. I think that's, I think it's incredible. Um, when, when you think about when, when, when it got to the point, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to publish this thing. And it talks all about, you know, calling your cravings a pig. Uh, did people do sensitive folks, um, take, take exception with that?
1: That's putting it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, you don't have to call it a pig, by the way. It works just as well if you call it a food demon or a food monster. The the critical paradigm shift is that you no longer see it as your wounded inner child that you're trying to nurture and reintegrate into your personality. It's it's no more a part of you than your. I mean, it is a part of you, but it's it's really just like your bladder or your testicles, your ovaries. It's it's just a, a biological urge. Um, so it's not necessary to call it a pig. In some way, I. Since the time that I wrote and published it, I've become vegan. And you know, so I am very much now aware of the plight that real pigs in the world have. And so I make sure to tell people I'm talking about a mental construct, which I distinguish with a capital P, not the small P pig, which are very sweet, intelligent animals that are absolutely being tortured in, in the world. And I, I would hate to facilitate that in any sh- way, shape, or form. Um, you talked about setting yourself up for failure. And there's there are a couple of important points I'd like to make there, if that's OK. Yeah, please. Okay. So when I use the word never, I'm using it for a very specific purpose and in a very specific way. And it's different than the way most people think about it. I'm using the word never so that there's a very clear boundary around the bullseye. If an archer is going to shoot at the bullseye, they have to know where that bullseye begins and ends. Not that they're always going to hit it. But they have to know where, where it begins and ends. Otherwise, they're playing blind archery, and there's no point to playing blind archery. If, if you don't know where you're shooting, you're probably going to hit something else, right? So I want very, very clear goals so that if you miss it, you can get up and adjust your aim and shoot again and shoot again and shoot again. Um, the name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. But also, I'm presenting the rule to the pig as if it were set in stone because the pig is no more than a two-year-old in maturity. And there are things that you tell two-year-olds that they can never do, even though you know you're going to teach them how to do it later on. So my little niece, Sarah, she's not so little anymore, but when she was two, I said, honey, you can't ever, ever, ever cross the street without holding my hand. I don't ever want to see you go into the street without taking my hand. Okay, honey, you can never cross the street without going, without holding my hand. But when she was seven or eight, we taught her how to look both ways and cross the street. So the analogy there is that you present the rule to the pig as if it were set in stone, like you're talking to the two-year-old, but you can change the rule anytime you really want to. What I recommend, the difference is you don't want to allow the pig to change it impulsively. So if you want to change the rule, you take the time to write down exactly what you want to change, what the resulting rule will be. Maybe I will only ever have chocolate the last three days of the calendar month. Um, maybe it's only of it in social situations. It's it's up to you. It's really up to you. And I, my plan is completely diet agnostic. However people want to eat is is up to them because I'm not a nutritionist or an MD. And, and once you've written down what you want to change, you write down why you want to change it. So you're sure that you've got a good rational reason for wanting to change it. And this shouldn't take more than a half an hour or an hour, but you should do it in writing at a time when you're not hungry and you're not experiencing the craving for that food. And then wait for 24 to 48 hours before you let that take effect. What, what that delay does is prevent there from being any physical reward for making an impulsive change. It's uh, In some ways, food is a complex behavioral ecosystem in much the same way that our society is. And if you look at the laws that govern society, there is a procedure for changing things and that legislative procedure has a purpose. It protects the law. It prevents there from being a state of chaos from impulsive changes you know, made in, in a panic or at, the, at a moment of weakness. And so that's, that's why I recommend that people make those changes. In terms of setting yourself up for failure or feeling too guilty, if you touch a hot stove, there's a purpose to the pain that you feel. You, if you didn't feel that pain, you'd be likely to keep burning yourself all the time. As a matter of fact, there's a disorder where people are born without the ability to feel pain. And they usually don't live past four or five years old because they don't learn. They don't know where the sharp edges are. They get curious about their insides. Um, there's, there's There's a function to physical pain. Now, if you touch the hot stove and then it hurts forever, that's not adaptive either. Psychologically, there's a function to feeling a little bit of guilt or shame, more guilt than shame, when you make a mistake. So if I say I will never have chocolate during the week again, and then I have some on Wednesday because my, you know, my pig said that uh, gee, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, which grows in a plant, and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, if 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 I let my pig talk me into it, then it's good that I feel a little guilty or a little ashamed because you want to treat these rules as if they're sacred. Right. They really mean something really mean something to you. And you, you want it to get your attention. But then you want to ask yourself, what did I do wrong? Maybe I didn't keep up my blood sugar during the day. Maybe I didn't have enough nutrition. Maybe I let myself get too tired. Maybe I should have brought I should have packed a lunch. You know, you, you figure out how can you take better care of yourself and you look at the mistake as a signal that you need to change your self-care routine in some way. Once you've done that and you've made the adjustments, and sometimes the adjustment is just, man, chocolate's not a vegetable. You can't fool me about that anymore. Okay, so I wrote that down. Now I know to ignore the next time it says the chocolate's a vegetable. And then you're one step better off. Now the pig can't surprise you anymore. When you're done with that, you're not supposed to say, oh, my God, I touched a hot stove. I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well just put my whole hand down on the throw and burn the whole damn thing off, right? <laughs> or like if you chip a tooth, you're not supposed to go grab a hammer and bang the rest of them out. <laughs> right? Just pay attention, make adjustments, and commit with perfection again. So we use the word never. We use very, very clear, unambiguous rules so that you can commit with perfection. If you, if you talk to an Olympic archer, before they let go of the arrow, they actually see that arrow going into the bullseye. It's like they've become one with the bullseye. They're not thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. I'll do the best I can. No, it's a foregone conclusion. Now, maybe they'll hit it, maybe they won't. But the doubt and uncertainty from wondering, "Gee, did I account for the wind resistance correctly? Gee, did I pull back far enough? You know, gee, I screwed up last time. I'll probably screw up again." Um, that they don't allow that doubt and uncertainty to distract them. From their commitment to the goal, right, and and that's what that's what I mean by committing with perfection—a perfectly clear bullseye with perfectly com- clear commitment, but then a willingness to forgive yourself with dignity after you've seriously analyzed what went wrong, so you can get up and aim again. And if you commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity, and you keep getting up, and you collect evidence of success, there are studies that show that people get better um, at performance twice as fast if they. Study what went right as opposed to what went wrong. Um, so much more emphasis on what went right. Is, so, yeah, I had a binge, but it was only five cupcakes, not 15. Or, gee, it was only 10,000 calories, not 20,000 calories. I'm serious. I'm serious. That Those are the types of things that you need to pay attention to so that you train your brain to collect evidence of success and you develop a success identity. So there's nothing about this philosophy that encourages um, – perseveration on guilt or shame or the degradation of self-esteem. As a matter of fact, as people get better at aiming at the target and they see their behavior improving, their self-esteem naturally improves. The people who are sensitive to it, and if you look on Amazon, you know, you'll see about 15% of the people hate it and the rest of the people absolutely love it, say that it saved their lives. But 15% of the people hate it. They've really looked at it casually. They haven't really understood the mindset that we're recommending for with perfection and, and forgiving yourself with dignity. So that's my answer to that. It's an unusual, it's a it's more complex philosophy than most of the popular philosophies out there because it requires flipping your mindset Right. before, yeah, because before a mistake, you're committing with perfection, but after a mistake, you're um, forgiving yourself with dignity and most people have that backwards. So it just takes a little bit to understand it.
0: We, we have to stand for something and we might as well stand for our own health and wellness and betterment. And like to your point, the deck is stacked against us. There are, there's lots of money going into finding out just the right mouthfeel and just the combination of salt and fat to keep us eating these products. And if we don't take a hard stand mentally, if we don't make a decision, like, no, I'm not going to let, I'm cool. I'm cool with, with the pig. Like I'm down with the pig. And I, I, I I think it's, it's an effective way to think about it because it makes you feel like, Ooh, Ooh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a pig. I don't want to look like a pig. I don't want to eat like a pig. I don't want to be a pig. And that's okay. Like that. I, I think that there's, there, there should be more resources like this, that allow ourselves to be, to, to have some discipline and to have a framework to follow that discipline and stick to it, to our own betterment. I want to go, I want to go back to, uh, you know, cause uh, your, your experience is very unique. Your, your professional experience gives you a certain insight into the, how we look at consumption. Um, and you've turned, you've, you've made good on it. Um, of what what's what are a couple of points that that people should know about what big food is doing, th- so that we can call bullshit on it right now. Is there a couple of th- <laughs> yeah? I'd love to know just a few uh, things.
1: Well, first of all, let me say that it's not solely their fault. P- people want to be lied to. Um, mm. you know, you know, I'm having this cupcake that's loaded with sugar and salt and fat, but it's got vitamin E in it, so it's okay, right? And so that that's one strategy is where they'll add some health claim with one element that's put into the food, but it ignores all the rest of the elements. Or, um, you know, these potato chips are baked, not fried, um, but yeah, they still have acrylamides and oils that, I mean, there's no oil tree in nature. So, so it's getting a little better in some ways because people are coming a little more aware of what is truly healthy and what direction they need to go in. And I mean, you look at the whole organic movement and that's clearly a, a sense of progress, but p- people want to be lied to. They they want to operate from their lizard brain and they just want an excuse to, to go along with it. So Big food is only too happy to, to go along with it. Um, the, the food you see in the commercials, it's, I mean, they actually use paint and plaster of Paris and, um, you know, injections of things that are completely inedible to plump them up and make them look more delectable and delicious. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like pornography the The images you see in pornography are not really what real lovemaking is about. Well, the images you see on television with food is not what real food looks like. so so there it's all about the supersizing of stimuli. There are these parts of the brain that reflexively respond to color and size and odor and smell and and so the industry figures out how to super supersize those elements of what it's presenting and the brain thinks that it's um, it's found the oil well you know it's found it's found the it's found the gold Um, and they're just things that aren't in nature and overcoming binge eating in some way involves rescinding and opting out of the overstimulated world that we live in And, and I'm not just talking about food if you if you go to the movies you know, how many car crashes and um, ridiculously attractive people who don't really exist in the real world are there? That, and, and how quickly do the scenes change? You know, we, we're consuming more and more scenes throughout the course of the movie than we ever did before. It's, it's not real life. And when you make a decision to take some of these things out of your life, it's worth it. Um, because there's a calmness that transcends upon you, but at first you feel bored. At first you wonder, is this what the real world is like? Uh, it, it's almost like stepping out of the Matrix in in the movie The Matrix, which is um, I forgot who said this. It's the coolest movie that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but that's that's what happens when you step into real life and you get some of these things out of your out of your system. And it's a process. Most people don't do it all at once. I certainly didn't do it all at once. And you should know that if you're feeling bored, that's okay. That's natural. On the other side of boredom, you'll begin to find your purpose. And and your pig doesn't want you to feel bored. It says it's intolerable. Because when you find your purpose, the pig slop is just pathetic. It's just unappealing entirely. Yeah. Cause you don't, you don't want to take another moment away from being able to pursue your purpose. Right. But it's, it's, it's on the other side of boredom. So you have to go through that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful point. You know, your purpose is not captain crunch. It's not uh, dessert at the end of a meal. Your purpose is, is something else different. Does this also apply to folks who are obsessed about food in a positive way? How do you mean? Well, for folks that are Super fit, you know, just picture which a lot of our listeners are crossfitters who are counting macros, obsessing over calories, um, maybe to an unhealthy extent they're they're healthy and they're fit and they look great, but but their whole life is consumed by by the food that goes into their body does that is there a connection there?
1: Yeah, um, the way I see it is that we need to take a couple of months to think through where the danger zones are. If you were a city traffic planner, your goal would be to have people naturally and safely progress throughout the city without having to think much except for obeying the rules of the road, right? And there's just a couple of rules of the road, like stop at stop signs and yield at yellow signs and that kind of thing. Um, you don't want to put in more traffic lights than you need as a city planner, because you're going to be restricting the freedom of the populace. You don't want to put in less traffic lights than you need, because you're going to be endangering the safety of the populace. It's it's a balance. And once you find that, you should be able to just drive around the city and daydream and not really have to think about what you're doing. It's like that with food. In the beginning, it feels like you're obsessing about all these rules, and um, but as you get more familiar with it and you figure out what works and what doesn't and then you combine and simplify the rules i mean I, i've got about four rules in my food plan i love them i i would not want to live without them but i don't have to think about them like i, I might even have to go look at it if I, if I really wanted to make sure i remember all four all at once so you know the situations would trigger them and i would know i don't have to do that so so it's um paradoxically, people think you're going to wind up thinking about food all the time if you follow this plan. But the opposite is true, because if you've made all of your important decisions about food, about the, the danger points, then there's nothing to think about, right? Because you, you can't really get in trouble anymore. When th- – this is why hard and fast rules work better than guidelines. If I were to say I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time, that would be the same thing as saying I'll only eat chocolate on the last three days of the calendar month, right? Three out of 30 is 10%. So I'll indulge 10%. I'll avoid it 90 What's the difference? Well, the difference is that when I say I'll avoid chocolate 90% of the time, every time I'm in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, I have to make another food decision. Is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? turns out that willpower is largely a fatigable muscle and that muscle is fatigued by decision-making, right. not just about food. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. And so you want to eliminate food decisions where you can. So if I say I'll only ever have chocolate in the last three days of the calendar month, well, I've eliminated all my, my chocolate decisions for 90% of the time. So it's it's much, much different. Yeah. It's much, much different. And because it's not even an option, you're not thinking about it. When you now for me personally, I evolved to the point that I decided never to, to have chocolate again because having it the last three calendar days of the month didn't work. Uh, And for some people, never is easier than sometimes And certain things. Once I did that, I thought I was going to be tortured forever, but I wasn't uh, because there's a, first of all, there's a principle of upregulation. So the desensitization of my pleasure center with regards to chocolate and sweet things went on for a long time, for a lot of, a lot of decades. But when I stopped doing it, I started to notice that fruit tasted sweeter Hmm. and and. You know, eight weeks later, I would hardly have any cravings, and have them once in a while. But I would go run and have a banana kale smoothie. And at first, I thought that was disgusting. And before I knew it, I was craving the banana kale smoothie. I was training my pleasure system to go. And if I, if I had insisted that it felt as pleasurable at first, I would have never done it. But I said, feelings aren't facts. I know that my body needs the banana kale smoothie. Um, It doesn't need the chocolate. There's no way my body could actually need the chocolate. So let me do this anyway, even though it doesn't feel right. And then before you knew it, um, six months later, I I don't think I had almost any cravings at all. And then two years later, I look at a bar of chocolate, and it just looks like a bag of chemicals to me. I I can't even remember why I liked it. So you're you're not going to be tortured forever. Your brain is very plastic. There's a whole set of research called... Neuro, whole field of research called neuroplasticity. Yeah, and and it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that we're wired for change because we never knew where the sustenance was going to come from. And so, if you train your body to look for sustenance in another place, it's torture for a little while, but then it's really not, and then it's incredibly freeing. Absolutely. And and, and that process is faster than you think it's going to be. Yeah,
0: I'm super curious. What sort of chocolate were you were you uh were you keen on? Was it like Hershey's or dark chocolate or
1: What sort of chocolate was I not keen on? <laughs> <laughs> Hers- Hers- Hershey's kisses and black and white cookies and brownies and chocolate muffins and um Sean, my sister and I buried a time capsule when I was 9 years old. Guess what we put in there? Ch- chocolate pop tarts, that's it. <laughs> chocolate pop tarts. <laughs> <laughs> I wish the um I wish the guy would let us go dig it up. I want to go see if they're still there. Oh
0: man, they're well, they're pop tarts, so they're probably they probably still, they're probably still they're, good. Yeah, they're probably still good. <laughs> they haven't decomposed yet. Oh, that's yeah. funny. This is really about personal empowerment. This is really about arming people with effective tools for them to to
1: change their lives, right? It is right. It's not what I intended. I just wanted to stop eating, um, but. As I developed this and I started studying how it was affecting other people, I realized that what we were doing was developing character. So I'll give you an example because people have unwritten rules, unbreakable rules that they follow all the time without knowing it. And I'm just suggesting that they add more. Um, If you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip and she says, hey, Sean, I'll be right back. I just have to get you a menu. She still didn't see it. And there are no video cameras and there's nobody up front. And there are no windows and nobody would see you take the $20 bill. Do you grab it? No. Because? Because you don't want to stiff the waitress. Right. And you're not a thief. Yeah. So you have an unwritten rule that says I never take take other people's money. Yeah. Absolutely. Why can't you? And that that's part of your character. As a matter of character, you're not a thief. As a matter of character, see what I'm really doing when I say that I'll never have chocolate again. What I'm really doing is saying I've decided to become the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate. So it's, yeah. it's, it's not a rule that I follow; it's the kind of person I've become. And you yes. could you could become the kind of person that only has it on Sundays. It, it doesn't matter. Once that shift has occurred, it's easy, man. Once once you're there, it's easy. Um, it's a process to get there, but. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, right. That that
0: that's that's a powerful thing because then it becomes who you are, it becomes, rather than the decisions that you make, which are fickle. Yeah. <laughs> because you're tired, and because uh, in the break room, Kelly from accounting brought donuts again. On it's Wednesday. It's not even Friday, but she's bringing the donuts in on Wednesday, and instead of instead of relying on your tired stressed out brain to make the decision it's like i'm just not the type of person that just eats donuts yeah that's a i i totally see that that's a much more powerful stance to make i i i i don't listen to farm animals <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah it it's all, it's all about the kind of person you choose to be and really when you're saying i don't eat pig slop i don't listen to farm animals telling me what to do what you're really saying is i'm a human being I, i'm choosing to be part of a civil society i'm choosing to relate to Others in different ways. There, there are certain pleasures in this life that I will abstain from so I can pursue other pleasures. Um, part of the reason yeah. that, that I don't eat chocolate or that i become the kind of person that doesn't eat chocolate so I can endure more time on the top of the mountain. So I can walk in the world as a confident, independent, thin man. So I can be a leader so that I can live free of diabetes and free of the worry of diabetes and heart attacks and strokes and cancer and all those types of things um, it's the kind of person and the kind of life that I want to lead. So that's, that's really what I don't need pig slop. I don't know if farm animals tell me what to do means. It's just at, at the moment of impulse, you don't have access to that human brain where, um, where creativity and humanism and self-actualization live. You're, you've got access to a uh, pig slop. So, right. Yeah. Right.
0: What do, what do the naysayers say? What do the haters say?
1: Essentially, two alternative ways. There's the rules-based way to overcome overeating, and there are a lot of point-counting systems and calorie-counting systems and nutrition calculators, and I attract a lot of those people. Um, There is the intuitive eating way of being, which says that any type of restriction, including mental restriction, will cause a binge. It's Mm. basically people who are stuck in the overeating cycle are incapable of... Following rules, even rules that they make themselves um, there there's something to that for certain kinds of people. There are certain people that intuitive eating works better for. I think it's a developmental stage. I think that as we are you know two three years old, we're starting to learn to deal with the rules of the world and depending upon how gently that was handled, we either rebel against them or cooperate with them or you know, come up with an interactive process that allows us to design our own, which is what I want people to do is to design their own rules. I'm not going to tell you what to eat. Um, I think in the world that we live in, intuitive eating would be the approach to eat, to eat more mindfully, to ask your body what it needs, to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Yeah, if we live in the tropics and we're eating bananas and lettuce, then I think we could do that. But when we're, when we're facing this onslaught of billions of dollars of research and rocket scientists and advertising and, you know, billions of dollars in the addiction treatment industry that says basically an untruth uh, and, and confuses people, I, I think you need boundaries. I think you could eat intuitively within those boundaries. I think that you can restore your mindfulness and ability to be present and, um, and, and you know, when you get your rules right, it's almost like a meditation because the monkey mind goes away. Really, all that chatter, all the things the pig says, you worked out hard enough, you could eat it now, um, start tomorrow, it doesn't really matter. I have counter all those, by the way. Um, that's the monkey mind. All that chatter is the monkey mind. And when, you, when it becomes not an option anymore to entertain the monkey mind, the monkey mind goes away. And so you wind up with a much greater presence in your relationships – a much greater ability to enjoy your food with presence and mild mindfulness. Ironically, through my crazy Nazi plan of coming up with all these rules. Um, and and the last thing I'd say about that is that when we live in a world where it's legal to put flavored cardboard into the food system, and it is, I could show you examples. Uh. Then, doesn't someone have to stand up and say, "Look, there are some things I won't put in my mouth. I mean, I don't eat duty." I don't go into the bathroom and take take out of the toilet. There are some things I won't put in my mouth. And just because they put sugar on the duty doesn't mean I'm going to eat the duty. So, so <laughs> you told me, you tell me not to worry about where I went with this one. So I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. I,
0: I found making bold outlandish and, and true statements about food with my kids seems to be really effective when they, when they see like, when they see McDonald's, when they see other kids eating candy and stuff for me to tell them like, it's plastic. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not real food, buddy. Like you don't want to eat that. It's going to make your tummy hurt. It's going to make your head hurt. It's going to make you itch. It's plastic. We don't eat plastic. Do we? That's great. And I've, and I've said that in front of other adults and they look at me like, why are you doing that? Like that, that's too far or that's not, that's, that's not true. And it's, and it's, it's it's important enough for me to make really hard draw really hard lines with their little you know uh, theta state brains to understand that that food is not it's it's not real food yeah we have to we have to, we have to empower ourselves to make those hard decisions because again like we are being we are being fed um, certain foods that have been invested and researched and and promoted in a way that 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 want.
1: Uh, they're they're they want us to think otherwise, they do.
0: That yeah. The goal is to, yeah, keep stuffing our sure.
1: faces. Sean, sure. what also works well with kids is to find an aspirational model. Like maybe there's an athlete they really admire or a character in a TV show or something and, and someone athletic or you know healthy or seems to have qualities they want and you say, well, how do you think he eats? What does he like to put yeah. in his mouth? Would, would he eat plastic? That, yeah, that, right. works, that works really well with kids.
0: Right, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's great. I know that we're coming up towards the end of the the end of the hour here, and I and I want to make sure to to ask this question: Does this approach lend itself to other books that you may write about um, exercise, or abstaining from gambling, or abstaining from porn addiction, abstaining from? I mean, did, I know I know you've thought of this already, but does this does this model work? Do you think for other addictions?
1: It does. It works for positive thinking. It, it works for any type of complex behavioral economy. Um, I The way that I've framed it out doesn't work for drugs and alcohol. There are reasons I can't really go into here for that, but I, I refer them over to Jack Trimpey's work at uh, Rational Recovery for that. But it, it does work for porn addiction. It does work for gambling. It works for a lot of things like, like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have written – follow-up books, by the way, but they're more specifically about the um, binge-related areas. Like, for example, we just released a book called 45 Binge Trigger Busters. So we looked at very specific situations. What do you do when you're full of self-doubt? What do you do when you're too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Those kinds of things. Um, yeah. But, but now you can get Never binge again. Can I tell them where they can get it? because I can give it to them for for free. Yes, please, please. Um, If you go to NeverBingeAgain.com and you click the big red button, I can get you a copy of Never Binge Again in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format for free. Uh, The Audible and paperback versions are also available for a small fee. It's NeverBingeAgain.com. When you do that, you'll get a whole bunch of other things. I put together a set of food plan starter templates. There's one for virtually every dietary philosophy you might be on, so whether it's high-carb or low-carb or you know, paleo or macrobiotic, whatever it is, point counting, calorie counting, we thought through a set of templates you could start with. I call them starter templates because I don't want to take responsibility for what you eat. I'm not telling you to eat this way. Ch- change it to match your own best judgment. And I recorded a set of full-length coaching sessions because I, I know that this is a weird philosophy, I know you're saying to yourself, why does Sean have this Dr. on who's got a pig inside of him? Seems like, <laughs> seems like a nice guy, but he's a kook. Um, and you might think that it's a harsh philosophy, but if you listen to it implemented in context, it's actually very life-giving. You will hear people go from feeling hopeless and powerless and confused about ever getting better to feeling hopeful and powerful and enthusiastic in, in just one session. And I wanted you to hear that, so that's all free. Um, NeverBingeAgain.com. There's, there are more resources there too for free, but neverbudgeagain.com. Awesome.
0: If you would to to uh, to take this thing home, is uh, fill in the blank, and I ask every every guest this this same the same fill in the blank question.
1: Everyone would benefit from knowing. Hmm. <sighs> that overcoming overeating is much simpler than it's made out to be. That that you could pick one. Rule that covers your single worst trigger food and behavior. Ask yourself what the simplest thing you could do to make a big difference in your life would be. And then watch your pig or your food demon, whatever you want to call it, watch it try to convince you otherwise. Learn how the game is played. Suddenly, you'll feel like there's a separation in your, in your mind and you know what your constructive thoughts are and you know what your destructive thoughts are. And there's a power you didn't have before. It's a lot simpler when you think it has to be. Awesome.
0: Dr. Glenn Livingston, thank you so much for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast.
1: Thanks, man, and thanks for being all potty mouth and stuff.